Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Please stand with me for the reading of the word this morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you're new to us, we go verse by verse through the Bible from Genesis to Revelations. We are now making our way through the book of 2 Samuel. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. The Bible says, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would also have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. But you, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. And Father, we do pray that you would take your word this morning, Lord. Let it do its convicting work in each heart represented here. I pray, Father, you would have your way in everything that is said. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In his book, Unspeakable, Oz Guinness shares this story. What should I have done? What could I have done? What would you have done? In most situations, those questions have an excuse-making ring to them. But that certainly is not the case with famous Jewish hunter Simon Weisenthal. Courage and responsibility are at the very center of his life. He has described his passionate sense of purpose in the World War II memoir, The Sunflower. When imprisoned in a concentration camp in Poland, Weisenthal and other prisoners were marched one day into town for a manual labor project at a military hospital that had once been the Lindbergh High School where Weisenthal had once attended. He was pulled aside from the work detail by a nurse who took him to a private sick room and left him alone with an obviously dying German soldier in a bed. I have not much longer to live, the sick man said in a barely audible voice. I am resigned to dying soon, but before that I want to talk about an experience that is torturing me. Otherwise, I cannot die in peace. The awkwardness between the two men was palpable. One was on the verge of death, 
swathed in bandages, badly burned, and in tremendous pain. But weighed down by a desperate desire to unload his conscience before he breathed his last. The other, the last Jew in his life, was tense and suspicious, still sensing a trap and sizing up the dying man before him in the half-light and fetid atmosphere of the ward. The German then said, I must tell you a horrid deed. I must tell you because you are a Jew. And so he did. The 21-year-old former Catholic had betrayed his family and joined the SS only to denigrate into a killer who committed horrifying acts of murder, including the burning alive of several Jewish families. The contrast between the two men was steep. Here lay a man in bed, Weisenthal wrote later, who wished to die in peace but could not, because the terrible memory of his crime gave him no rest. And by him said a man doomed to die but who did not want to die because he yearned to see the end of the horror of the war that had blighted the earth. Once the German grasped for Weisenthal's hand, but he withdrew it out of reach. Once Weisenthal stood up to leave, but was held fast by the cold, bloodless hand. Eventually the dying man sat up painfully in his bed and put his hands together as if to pray or to plead but he was unable to get any words out. Weisenthal was in no mood to help and so remained silent. The German said, I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Again, there was no response. At last, Weisenthal said, I made up my mind and without a word, I left the room. When I read that, it reminded me that guilt can be both a terrible or a glorious thing, depending on what we do with it. It can either drive us away from or draw us to the only one who has the ability to deal with guilt. King David has been experienced the first for several months now. But today, he is finally going to deal with his sin so that the healing can begin. If you weren't here last week, Nathan has just told David the parable about the rich man, the poor man, and the little ewe lamb. Now David, of course, is incensed at the callous action of the rich man, not yet realizing that he is actually condemning himself. Look at verse 7 with me. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. The prophet realized that although David was very angry, he was also unguarded and ready for the sword of the Spirit to pierce his heart. And so with one quick thrust, Nathan said, you are the man. He then proceeded to hold up the mirror that revealed to King David how dirty he really was. And what he had to say was from God. So we could expect it to carry quite a punch to someone who quite frankly needed to be punched. The prophet faced the king whom the Lord had chosen 
And in the Hebrew, he pronounced two devastating words when he said, you are the man. Now those two words passed judgment on a sequence of events that had begun with another two-word message in the original when Bathsheba had declared, I am pregnant. Just put yourself in David's place this morning. Insert yourself into that passage. Imagine what it would feel like right after Nathan declared, you are the man. It had to be that David's heart just absolutely sunk to the floor. He goes from one end of the spectrum to the other in about half a second. He has went from boisterous self-righteousness to a mind-blowing feeling of guilt and about the time you could say Bathsheba. I love how Max Lucado describes the scene. He writes, Oh David, you never saw it coming, did you? You never saw Nathan erecting the gallows or throwing the rope over the beam. You never felt him tie your hands behind your back, lead you up the steps, and stand you squarely over the trap door. Only when he squeezed the noose around your neck did you gulp. Only when Nathan tightened the rope with four three-letter words, you are the man. David's face pales. His Adam apple bounces. A bead of sweat forms on his forehead. He slinks back onto his throne. He makes no defense. He utters no response. He has nothing to say. God, however, is just clearing his throat. Verse 8, please. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Listen to the Lord's words again back in verse 7. He said, It is I who anointed you over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Notice in verse 7, God begins by saying, I anointed you. A little later, he says, I delivered you. And then we see the first three words of verse 8 is, I gave you. There isn't a single Christian in this room who has, has fallen into some type of sin that God cannot say the exact same thing to this morning. I anointed you, I delivered you, and I gave you. Look at how good I have been to you. And it is against that goodness that you have sinned against. Now remember, David is condemning the rich man in the parable, although David's actual sin against Uriah was infinitely worse. Perhaps Paul even thought of this incident when he penned Romans chapter 2. See what you think. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, accord against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not realizing that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. You know, 
every time I sin, I am disappointing God. But not in the way that we think of the word disappoint. What I mean is, I am disappointing Him. And that I am rejecting His divine appointment to reign for good in my life. And so I disappoint God so that I can appoint myself to be God in His place. Now, for a man who still can't match what tie goes with what shirt, this is a very bad idea. Verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. That word despise is a synonym in the original with the word divide. It would be like someone who would say, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm not going to do what he says. I'll enjoy his blessings in my life, but that doesn't mean I have to obey him or revere him. Did you ever have a kid like that? Don't raise your hand or anything. But they would be like, I'm going to eat your food and run up your electric bill, but if you ask me to take out the garbage, I'm going to look at you like you have three heads. And so God slapped David with the worst possible charge, a seldom used but a carefully worded charge, and it was this, to despise the word of the Lord. God was not going to let David get away with pretension or with murder. He charged David not with despising the little man and acting like a tyrant, or betraying Uriah's trust, but mainly for despising the word of the Lord. The only other verses that occurs in the Bible is two different times, and each time either leads to death by stoning or by captivity and exile. Years earlier, the Bible records that when Goliath saw David come up against him and saw that he was little more than a boy glowing with health and handsome, it says that Goliath despised him. And now God is saying to David that he has had that same kind of disdain for the word of the Lord. And for someone who honestly did love God and his words, which David did, that had to be a devastating blow to the heart of David. Look at verse 10 with me. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. David discovered a spiritual principle that holds true in every person's life, and here it is. God always completely and instantly forgives sin when there is confession and true repentance, but he does not always remove the consequences of our sinful behavior. And in the upcoming weeks, we're going to see that the sword will not depart from David's household, and his wives will be taken and violated just as he had taken Bathsheba, and violated her. For the rest of David's lifetime, 
he experienced one tragedy after another, either in his family or in his kingdom. What a price he paid for a few minutes of passion with his neighbor's wife. I wish I could promise you that removing all the effects of sin was as easy as erasing a chalkboard, but that's simply not true. It's like if you drive a nail through a board. Of course, those of you who know my carpentry skills, and this is a totally hypothetical when it comes to me, because when I hammer nails, my nickname is Lightning. Not because I'm fast, but because I never strike the same place twice. Uh, but enough about my issues. But you can drive a nail through a board, and you can pull the nail out. We could say that that is forgiveness. But the hole is still left in the board. The consequences of what you have done just don't disappear. But when we accept the grace of God, he comes along and he heals those wounds. And the scars remain simply as reminders of what sin can do to us and as testimony of God's grace to rescue us from sin's power. But David is also going to write in Psalm 38, For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity, but I am full of anxiety because of my sin. That warns us that some falls are fatal in the sense that the pain may never completely go away. Is there forgiveness and restoration? Yes, there is, but not without lasting consequences. Verse 12, please. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. However, unlike David's secret hidden wickedness, which he did at night, and which he went to extreme lengths to keep hidden, the thing will be done before the sun. God's judgment will be open before all of Israel. And the rest of the book of 2 Samuel will tell, the will tell the terrible story anticipated in the pronouncement of this punishment. David's house will be deeply troubled by violence for the rest of his life and for generations to come. By the way, how did Nathan get all this knowledge about David? God told him. And how did God know? Because God saw it. The fact that David tried to keep everything in the dark proved futile. Psalm 139.12 tells us that even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light, they are the same to you. It was the late J. Vernon McGee who said that, an open, that a secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. If I didn't like you so much, I would have used my J. Vernon McGee voice right there. Have you noticed that this is a very one-sided conversation? God is doing all the speaking, and David is doing all the listening. Listen to one commentator who gives this insight. He writes, After great inquest at the end of days, when all history's books will be opened, when justice will be vindicated for the whole world, 
and Shalom will be restored to the, the last reaches of the cosmos, we will all stand before God defenseless. All human secrets will be laid bare, all alibis blown, and all excuses, evasions, and hypocrisies exposed for the threadbare frauds that they really are. What does that tell us? Simply this. In the great choir of life, one day, every person in this room is going to have to sing a solo before God. Verse 13, please. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall, you shall not die. Most commentators believe that some time has passed, almost a year or perhaps a little more, since David has committed his crimes. And with the benefit of hindsight, David would later reflect on this time in Psalm 32. He said, For when I kept silent, Siri just came on for some reason. <laughs> Siri, how do I preach? Oh, no. <laughs> For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of the summer. I think that passage perfectly describes the pain brought upon us by guilt. Pain is our body's way of warning us that something is wrong. Hunger pains tell you to eat. Sunburn pain tells you to go indoors. Chest pains tell you to go to the hospital. And really, guilt kind of operate, operates much like the warning light on our cars. If you're driving along and the light starts flashing, service engine soon, you now have a choice. You can stop the car, open the hood, and see what's wrong, or you can take a piece of black electrical tape and cover the light and just sit back with a satisfied feeling of a job well done. This is why Connie pays people to do stuff at our house. But if you do that, no one will know the difference, well, until you burn up the engine. And at that point, we realize what a stupid decision it was not to pay attention to the light that's on the dashboard. Now, sadly, some Christians are just like that. When the light of guilt begins to flash, they choose to ignore it and just keep on going. And somewhere down the road of life, their lives completely fall apart and they realize what a foolish decision it was not to stop and confess their sins. And so David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. The result, Nathan assured David that the Lord had put away his sin. What does 1 John 1.9 promise us? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what does it mean to confess our sins? It's the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means the same, and legeo means to speak. And so put together, it means to speak the same thing. In other words, I simply agree with God's assessment over my behavior. 
So David knows and acknowledges his sin, and he is now seriously considering the heinous acts that he has committed. And this is a good sign of a thoroughly broken spirit. There is no excuse, no cloaking, no defense of the sin. There is no searching for a loophole, no pretext put forward, no human weakness pleaded. He acknowledges his guilt openly, candidly, and without evasiveness. Suddenly, David understood. Whenever there's a finger pointing at someone else, there's three other fingers pointing back at me. And so David didn't try to defend himself, and he also didn't blame Bathsheba. He simply and succinctly said, I've sinned against the Lord, period. No amplification, no raw emotion, it's a simple declaration and an honest confession. He has now finally became vulnerable to God, Nathan, the people, and even himself. He is finally going to be open and honest about his life. And I'm sure that now David realizes that everyone is now going to find out what he did. Henry Cloud points out that it's no coincidence that God placed our tear ducts in our eyes. He writes, they could have been in some less conspicuous place, like in our armpits or between our toes, but God placed them in our eyes. He wants our tears to be out front, right where we don't want them, and right where other people can see them. We are vulnerable not by accident, but by design. Psalm 51 that David will write reveals this exact moment in time. He writes, Make me to know joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What does David mean? God hasn't broken any of his bones. Well, as a former shepherd, David refers to a certain practice of Middle Eastern shepherds, that if a lamb continually wandered away, jeopardizing its life by going to areas containing either poisonous plants or wolves and foxes, the shepherd would finally have no recourse but to break the lamb's legs. Then he would reset the bones, splint them, and carry the lamb on his shoulders until the lamb was healed. And when the splint was taken off, the lamb would never, ever again leave the shepherd's side so closely had it bonded with the shepherd. And David is now broken. And that is the difference between remorse that comes about because of the results of our sin and repentance, which has to do primarily with the cause and God whom we have sinned against. Now, in the book of Numbers, sins which are unintentional and those that are intentional were dealt with differently. Even when someone sinned intentionally, there was the option for repentance. But with flaunting, deliberate, what the Bible calls high-handed sins, the most severe punishment would be meted out. Listen to the passage. But the person who does anything with a deliberate high hand, whether he is native or an alien, reviles Yahweh. And that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has, here's the word again, despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off, and his guilt will be upon himself. But what is a 
high-handed sin. Well, in the ancient Near East, one can find pictures or statues of a god or a warrior with his fist raised up to the sky. This is the picture of a high hand. In the passage that I read, it's used as someone who's literally shaking a defiant fist in the face of God as if to say, try and strike me dead if you want to, but I am going to do my own thing. This is what David did when it comes to his adultery and his murder. Now, could this be the moment at which the great promise concerning David's household would now be forfeited? Is this the Lord's rejection of David, just as he had rejected Saul, who had also rejected the word of the Lord? There is a difference between the two. You see, the word of the Lord that Saul rejected was a command. Saul's kingship had been established with a warning about obedience, where it says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of your God, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, and your king. Now, in contrast to that, the word of the Lord that David had despised was a promise. And that promise included, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And so perhaps the most astounding words in this entire chapter were now heard by David. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Here is the scandal of the grace of God. How is it possible? Indeed, how is it even right that God would put away the sin of David? It's not as though David had any excuse. He of all people knew exactly what he was doing. Nor can we pretend that what he had done was harmless. We know that several people have already died. And yet the Lord, who has seen it all, and whose eyes it had been evil, was also the very one who sent Nathan to tell David what the God of Israel would say about this. And that is, the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. This means that the Lord would not hold David's sin against him. Psalm 130 says that if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? This is the thing that makes David different from Saul. The thing that made David a man after God's own heart wasn't because he was perfect or that he never sinned. But when he did blow it, ultimately because of the great love that he truly did have for God, he would always repent and turn back to the Lord. Saul, on the other hand, would confess his sins, but he would never turn away from them. That is why at the end of his life, Saul could sum up his legacy with these words, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Let me ask you, do you want those words on your tombstone? Me neither. This is the importance of truly repenting and turning away from our sins. In closing, I hope the past couple of weeks has served as a warning to all of us in the area of temptation because there are always going to be consequences 
those times that we sin. There was an article in Leadership Magazine a while back called Consequences of a Moral Tumble by Randy Alcorn. And he said, Whenever I feel particularly vulnerable to sexual temptation, I find it helpful to review what effect it could have. For instance, I'd be grieving the Lord who redeemed me. I'd be dragging his sacred name through the mud. One day I'd have to look at Jesus, the righteous judge, in his face and give him an account of my actions. I'd be following the footsteps of those people whose immorality forfeited their ministry and caused me to shudder. I'd be inflicting untold hurt on my best friend and loyal wife and then losing her respect and trust. I'd be hurting my children and destroying my example and credibility with them and nullifying both present and future efforts to teach them to obey God. After all, why should they listen to a man who had betrayed their mother and them? And then if my blindness should continue or my wife is unable to forgive me, perhaps losing my wife and my children forever. I'd be causing shame to my family as they would ask, why isn't daddy a pastor anymore? I'd be losing self-respect and creating a form of guilt I can never shake because even though God could forgive me, I would never be able to forgive myself. I'd be forming memories and flashbacks that could plague any future intimacy with my wife. I'd be wasting years and years of ministry training and experiences that I've had. I'd be forfeiting the effects of years of witnessing to my father and reinforcing his distrust for managers that has only begun to soften using my example. But that may even harden, perhaps permanently now, because of my immorality. I'd be undermining the faithful example and hard work of other Christians in our community. And I'd be bringing great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God, and all that is good. And then I'd be heaping judgment and endless difficulty on the person with whom I committed adultery then I could also be bearing the physical consequences of pregnancy with the personal and financial implications, including a lifelong reminder of my sin. And then there's always the possibility of bearing the physical consequences of such diseases as gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, herpes, and AIDS, maybe even infecting my wife with a case of AIDS, even causing her death. And finally, causing shame and hurt to my friends, and especially those I've led to Christ and discipled. I pray that everyone, including me, will always consider the consequences of sin because there always will be consequences. And Father, we just pray that we would never become hardened to your word, to your spirit, or even to our conscience. Because I know, Lord, it is possible to have your conscience seared with a hot iron. You can deaden it so often. And I pray, Father, that would not be true of anyone in this room. Keep our hearts soft. Keep our accounts with you short. I pray that when we do sin, you said if any man says he does not have sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. So even if we do sin, Lord, those times we do, we would quickly repent and truly want to live a life that is pleasing to you. That's in Christ's name. Amen.